You are listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about this show, as well as the other show I do, How to Stan, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com and subscribe to my newsletter at howtostan.substack.com. K-pop interviews, album reviews, and more. Subscribing is free, but if you want to continue to support my work, feel free to donate. Click the support the show button on the homepage at 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Hello everybody and welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. There's a lot to get to today, so let's just dive right in on Stay Tuned, the episode series about what's new in the worlds of tech, music, and entertainment as a whole. Recently, Supreme Boy and Slow Rabbit were quietly added to the songwriting credits for NCT Dream's Countdown, after fans pointed out some comparisons to Angel or Devil by TXT. Interesting caveat here, though, they were added to the songwriting credits, not production credits. Anyway, this brought to mind an incident from 2019, when Louis Tomlinson was belatedly added to songwriting credits for Love Shot by XO after parallels were noticed between Love Shot and Louis song Back to You. I could go on and on, but this latest development of Supreme Boy and Slow Rabbit getting credits after a song is out just made me think, I was planning on doing this episode for a while now anyway, why not make now the time? So let's dive into a brief history of times people have been accused of ripping off each other, and then being added to credits maybe later, and why this is happening more and more frequently. So let's go back in the timeline to 2014. Sam Smith really stay with me, and he was accused of ripping off I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty. That case had to be settled out of court. That same year, a song came out called Prism Song by Julie Byrne, and later on, fans on Twitter brought to Nick Thorburn's attention, he's the leader of the band Islands, that he had accidentally copied Julie Byrne's song with his song Carpenter. Nick was very apologetic and frankly shocked. He recalled how he started thinking about it and said, wow, you know what, I had recorded a version on my phone, and then years later, when looking for song inspo, found that note recording and assumed I had made up the song I was singing. So he misattributed the song to himself. He then started handing over 100% of the publishing rights to Byrne. Byrne never commented publicly. Then there was the Uptown Funk case, Mark Ronson's Uptown Funk featuring Bruno Mars belatedly added five people to the song who had previously worked on a similar song, Oops Upside Your Head by Gap Band, then added Trinidad James and another producer, Devin Gillespie. In 2017, Wright Said Fred met with Taylor Swift's team because they got an early heads up from Swift that Look What You Made Me Do was going to sound a whole lot like I'm Too Sexy. They cut an undisclosed deal in those private meetings regarding percentages of songwriting credit and revenue as a result. Earlier this year, Lord released Solar Power and revealed in an interview she drew heavily from Loaded by Primal Scream. Yet she's also insisted in some interviews that she never heard the song Loaded before making Solar Power, and that they sound similar coincidentally. Anyway, Lord reached out to and apologized to the leader of Primal Scream, who sounded totally cool about it. Although Primal Scream has not, to this day, as of recording time, gotten any songwriting credit. And most recently, what's been buzzed about are the influences on Olivia Rodrigo's debut album, Sour. 
She recently added Haley Williams and Josh Farrow from Paramore to the writing credits on Good For You, which sounds a lot like Misery Business by Paramore, and fans pointed that out a lot. And so now they have official writing credit. Because of this, Billboard reports that Olivia has now given up millions, literally millions of dollars in royalties. Because now she gets 25% of the revenue, basically. 50% now goes to Haley and Josh. And then her and her collaborator get the other 50%. So she basically gets 25%, I would assume. They're also presumed to be getting only half the money now for their interpolations of some Taylor Swift songs. We'll get back to that in a little bit. What really laid the groundwork for these cases is a case from 1976. One of the Beatles, George Harrison, was found guilty of copying He's So Fine by the Chiffons in his song My Sweet Lord. He seemed to be fine with this, though, and actually wrote a parody song about the whole experience in 1976 called This Song. Another massive court ruling was from 2005. To understand this case, I really quickly now want to clarify the difference between sampling a song and interpolating it. Sampling a song means they cut and pasted. They took part of a song and put it in their song. Interpolating is when they overtly, intentionally copy part of a song by recreating it with their voice, instrument, etc. in their own way. So sampling, they actually do just copy-paste the audio. Interpolating is like on Olivia Rodrigo's songs that took from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer in New Year's Day. In 2006, Bridgeport Music sued Jay-Z, saying that Justify My Thug ripped off Madonna's Justify My Love, which he did sample a bit in that song. And Bridgeport's argument in court was that interpolating's fine, but sampling is never okay. And in 2005, a Sixth Circuit court did rule in Bridgeport's favor, saying, Alright, all sampling is copyright infringement. The court said, quote, get a license or do not sample. We do not see this as stifling creativity in any significant way, unquote. Now, Bridgeport is a company that has been dubbed a sample troll, seeming to make one of its missions to keep tabs on artists sampling others and then sue them. This is a one-man corporation that has filed nearly 500 copyright infringement claims just in 2001 against over 800 artists and labels. And it should be noted that although Bridgeport has gotten an appellate court to say you're right, all sampling is illegal, that's the only court that has ruled that way. So just one appellate court amid all of these cases is now agreeing with a legal precedent that says all sampling is copyright infringement. So Bridgeport didn't really win as much as you think in that case, but it is still significant to note nonetheless. There was another massive moment in a 2015 court ruling regarding Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke. Blurred Lines was officially considered to have legally infringed on the copyright of Gotta Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. Pharrell Williams, who co-wrote the song, did admit its production was inspired by the song. What made this court ruling more surprising to people was not that the production was seen as similar, but that its melodic structure was not the thing focused on. This case was basically seen as opening up Pandora's box, because previously it was more about overt melodies that you ripped off. But this case suddenly opened up the can of worms, saying you could win in a lawsuit about something like the Sun's production. It doesn't have to be overtly the melody that you're pointing out is similar. 
And now, artists are scared. One musicologist, Judy the Finnell, who testified on behalf of Gay's estate, compared what's happening now to basically a place where a ton of car thefts have always happened, but they just started enforcing the no car theft rule. And so now all the people who stole cars before, without caring, are now paranoid and have stopped stealing cars. And they fear a legal consequence if they do. Joe Bennett, another forensic musicologist who has been called into court over these types of things, says he gets a lot of calls now, just-in-case calls, where people want him to use his forensic musicology to listen to two songs and see if they are going to be deemed in court as too similar or not. He's asked before the songs are released to verify just because they fear legal repercussions more than ever. Now more than ever, these artists are doing what Swift's team did in 2017 in reaching out in advance and saying, hey, heads up other artists, we may be accused of copying each other. What do you think? Back in the 19th century, before the internet, music copyright cases, when they did happen, they tended to be just based on literal, physical paper theft. Like you stole someone's sheet music or the handwritten lyrics. It was kind of cut and dry back then when you had enough evidence to sue someone and claim a copyright infringement. Literally, their fingerprints are all over this. And it's always been the case with these copyright suits that a guilty verdict does not necessarily require a certain intent, but a certain level of access. You have to prove that they could have actually obtained the intellectual property you accused them of taking from you. So back before the internet, you could prove, hey, they had access to my tour bus or my recording studio. Obviously, the digital landscape complicated this 100-fold because... How many times have you quoted new slang or referenced a meme and you don't remember where it's from? Or even a tweet or an Instagram caption with lyrics maybe or with a quote, you reference something and don't remember the primary source. That is so much more common and easy to do now, which is why these copyright suits are so weird and complex lately. If you really try, you could argue way back six degrees unwound of where a piece of content came from. So it's a lot harder to be able to proclaim yourself the owner of a statement. When you may be like the fourth or fifth carrier of the same joke or the same comment you heard online, etc. And now with the use of streaming services and so much incredible access to a global catalog of music, you're bound to hear more songs and the sheer volume of new music you can access makes it a lot more likely that you'll hear different songs and feel like one ripped off the other. The sheer quantity of music people can access really helps also open the floodgates if you wanted to allege that someone copied someone else, that you've heard this before, that this was not original. That is how the legal field has changed and why these suits are so common nowadays. As for the songwriting, credits added belatedly, and the fear of being sued more than ever, if we look at this through a psychological angle, cryptomnesia is to blame, is accidental plagiarism. Actually, the earliest case of this is dated back to 1892, when Helen Keller was discovered to have accidentally plagiarized a short story when she was just 11. But then it took until 1989 for the first big case study of cryptomnesia to be conducted by psychology professor Alan S. Brown. His conclusion was that when you put people in a group setting, they often copy each other's moves, copy each other's work, without even realizing it. 
they start mimicking each other. Outside of this condition, there are plenty of other similar psychology experiments conducted over the years, which, as always, I will link to on my site, which really point out how much humans end up copying each other often without realizing it. For example, back in 2015, a psychology professor at Christopher Newport University, Gail Dow, asked participants to do a whole bunch of creative stuff, like draw this or that, and found that people tended to copy inspiration bits from the example drawing. When an example was provided, a lot of them mimicked the example. The thing is, cryptomnesia, quote, in itself could be viewed as a component of creativity. So actually, this cryptomnesia could be even more widespread than you think. The reason why it feels like the music industry specifically deals with it the most and deals with these lawsuits the most is because these artists are very focused on their music. Again, as a facet of the creative process. As Brown put it, quote, we're used to half listening. So Brown sees the frequency of cryptomnesia in the music world as being because those are the type of people who are super focused, intently, actively listening to music and actively searching for sources of creativity. So maybe a lot more of us would accidentally plagiarize each other or detect when we are copying each other if we were forced to do so without half listening, fully really immersing ourselves in what we're doing. Basically, multitasking prevents us from realizing when we plagiarize someone. So what happens now? With the threat omnipresent of being sued, some technology actually is in process that would help detect plagiarism. Kind of like turnitin.com, but audio. But then, of course, that opens up a whole new can of worms and has defects like any robotic scanner of sorts will do. I honestly think artists are just going to learn to live with this. Learn that this is bound to happen in today's globalized music world. We're bound to keep being inspired by each other, and so we're going to have to learn to be okay with not knowing where the line is between drawing inspiration or paying homage to someone and just flat out copying them. We need to learn to be okay with not knowing where the line is between copying someone and just being inspired by them. At the end of the day, how much does that matter? Is drawing that distinction between inspiration and ripping off important at all? Because artists in other ways have been borrowing from each other forever. And so today's landscape is no different. The borrowing from each other is probably the same as it has been for decades. It just feels like that's not the case because of the media. But what I'm trying to say is that if artists view this as a new threat to creativity, they should remember this has actually not been a new threat, but just a present part of the creative world. Artists are also aware that certain pieces of songs, like chord loops, are just so foundational to song making that they have no copyright protections over them, nor could they ever. And again, let's ask ourselves, why does it truly matter? Now, I'm not saying don't bother copywriting your work, I'm just saying I think we need to reevaluate how we define intellectual property and ownership of it for this new globalized world, because the old definitions are not going to fly. Proving access, for example, how on earth do you do that in a digital world? What's interesting about this topic coming to a head lately because of Olivia Rodrigo's album is because it also proves my point here, that we have to learn to be okay, maybe, with softening the lines around 
what we let other artists be inspired by when it comes to our own work. We have to redefine our sense of ownership over it. I'm not saying I know how to do that. I'm just saying it's something to think about. Adam Levine from Maroon 5 actually posted a video to social media giving his two cents, saying, this is the nature of music nowadays and we should be honored by people who we paved the way for. And then in other praise for her album, there's a riff in her song Brutal that has been compared to Pump It Up by Elvis Costello. And Costello actually responded on Twitter to the comparisons being pointed out, saying, quote, it's how rock and roll works. You take the broken pieces of another thrill and make a brand new toy. I'll leave you with that thought. Now let's move on to our next story, which will be more condensed. There was a big lawsuit filed, an ongoing feud of sorts between Apple and Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite. So here's a very condensed, summarized rundown of the verdict. So back in August 2020, Epic Games went against Apple's policy by allowing in-game Fortnite items to be bought directly through them. So they skirted Apple's guideline where they would get 30% of the pay from those purchases through the Apple Store because Epic Games allowed fans to just directly buy through them. Apple said, you can't do that, that violated our agreement. You gypped us out of a lot of money. So Apple retaliated by kicking Fortnite out of the iOS Store, which triggered this lawsuit by Epic. The trial was held in spring of this year, and relatedly, South Korea just passed a law banning app stores from blocking third-party payment systems. In other words, banning places like Apple from blocking places like Epic Games for trying to have their alternate route of getting paid. A district court judge in the USA, Ivan Gonzalez-Rogers, said Apple's demand for the 30% pay cut is deemed anti-competitive. But, legally speaking, she said that does not mean Apple counts as a monopoly. So basically, Epic Games won their lawsuit in some ways and not in others. So Epic still has to pay Apple some damages now, including over $3.65 million of back pay in commissions. This legal ruling does not require Apple to let Fortnite back on the Apple Store. So although Epic kind of technically won, Apple's power was kind of limited here. The rules were kind of deemed unfair. So Epic gets to go about their system the same, bypassing Apple stores. But Epic still has to deal with back pay. And they don't have to legally be required back on. So other game companies might actually not try to follow suit. Even though Epic won, there may not be copycat suits because these other game companies, one, don't want to pay the back pay if they lose. And two, even if they win, know that based on this court precedent, Apple may not let them back on the store. So no one wants to fall out of those good graces if they don't have to. Moving on to the next story. Rolling Stone just reported on a new $5 million round of strategic funding in Audius, a new company hoping to be the next Spotify. Big-name investors in Audius already include Jason Derulo, Nas, Pusha T, and Katy Perry. Audius is blockchain-powered, so it actually is a cryptocurrency-driven open-source medium, and you access it through tokens called the Audio. Certain records broken means that those musicians get audios as a reward. All of this cryptocurrency money does go directly to the artist instead of a third party. Audius has partnered with TikTok, so any track from Audius you can use in your TikTok video. 
in the announcement of this partnership was followed by a 90% boost in the value of these audio coins. So the TikTok partnership gives me a little more optimism for this company's future, but not tons. It's very hard to see a company becoming what they call the next Spotify. The way I think they could do that is to continue to lean heavily into this artist-first approach, like SoundCloud does, where they have this fan-powered model, as they call it, where ad revenue money and listener stream-induced money goes directly to them, not a third party first. So if they capitalize on that as a marketing strategy, saying, hey, audience is paying your faves better, maybe that does something. But I also think people may just not want to be inconvenienced, frankly, and are comfortable with the apps they use now and don't feel like getting invested, literally or otherwise, in another streaming service. Full disclosure, this podcast is brought to you by a host site owned by Spotify. So I have to say that, but that's kind of where I see this headed. Maybe somewhere promising? I do also think the blockchain aspect, though, will limit it. I just don't see that becoming the super legitimized currency to the extent that crypto fanatics seem to think it will be, which we've talked about already on the show, so let's move on. While some in-person concert events are returning, some are not. Because of the artist's choice. Some artists insist they will not perform at venues that require vaccines and or masks to attend. Others are the opposite and will perform only at venues using those safety precautions. Some entirely just feel like it's unethical right now. Neil Young wrote a recent op-ed calling out Live Nation and different artists who are touring right now, saying, quote, Money in business, that doesn't make this okay. It's a bad example. Folks see concerts advertised and think it might be okay to go and mingle. It's not. These are super spreader events. Irresponsible freedom fests. We need freedom to be safe, not a bad example. This could be just the beginning, unquote. I get what he's saying about the risk, but I will again point you back to what events like Lollapalooza have shown, which is a very minimal case count as a result of attending that jam-packed festival thanks to a 90% fully vaxxed crowd. So with the right precautions, I think it can be relatively safe. And with those precautions, I think you can find a balance between feeling like it's immoral to perform because it's too risky and feeling compelled to perform for financial reasons. I know he says doesn't make it right and this is profit-driven to be hosting shows right now. But honestly, what are music venues supposed to do, you know? We may have botched our chance to ever reach herd immunity. These venues can't just stay closed forever. A lot of them are already near shuttering their doors just because of the pandemic downturn in revenue. So to get them up back and running, I just view as so important so these concert venues don't go under permanently that I admittedly am willing to risk a little, mask up and get vaccinated and go to a show. So with the right health precautions, I do think it is okay and not immoral to have these events right now, because it's not a given that they are super spreaders. Now, it's a separate conversation when we talk about the venues that don't require the health protocols first. That you should have more qualms about vouching for, but there is a way to keep the live music scene alive and well right now that deserves investment. Moving on to the latest news about the metaverse, A U.S. judge recently ruled that artificial intelligence officially legally cannot get its own patent. They deemed that technically, in legal speak, artificial intelligence is not people. 
what is outlined in law as the rights of humans do not apply to AI. But apparently they still apply to corporations. That's a rant I will go on another day. But anyway. That was an interesting precedent that was set, especially after the AI ruling in India I talked about on an episode of Stay Tuned a few weeks ago. Speaking of, the digital metal band, a solely digital metal band, Pentakill, came back from their hiatus. They were created back in 2014, they topped the iTunes charts by 2017, they went away for a while, and they came back. Teaming up with a program called Wave that we also talked about on a previous Stay Tuned episode, they had a virtual concert to celebrate their comeback naturally, thanks to humans in motion capture suits. This is one of the many reasons I have gone on rants on this show before in defense of these digital characters, because anyone who says they're taking away work from humans doesn't get how these characters are made by teams of humans. So they're actually kind of creating jobs in that sense. And they let more humans feel open to sharing their art with the world through an avatar as opposed to the real face. Last bit of news real quick. TikTok has officially surpassed YouTube in terms of total viewing time per user. The big caveat here, though, is that YouTube continues to have more viewers overall. And YouTube is still the app where the most overall time is spent when not looking at this data on a per-person basis. So your average individual spends more time on TikTok than YouTube, but in the aggregate, you could say people spend more time on YouTube than TikTok. Interesting new revelation, and more insights from this kind of study I will link to, as always, on my site. Thank you all for listening, as always, and I will talk to you all again very, very soon.